0: So even if you're connecting all the dots for them, there is someone sitting on the other end, and his role is to decide what's going on and what's not. And what we are trying to do is to create a process in which everything is very, very easy for them to just say yes or no.
1: Welcome to the Halftime Snacks. My name is Ronen Aimbino. This show explores the intersection between sports, business, and technology. Are you ready? Let's go. Joining us today for the Halftime Snacks is a sports enthusiast and a thriving entrepreneur. Coming to the show all the way from Israel is a man that left his job to work on his startup and today he's the CEO and co-founder of Pico. Pico is an award-winning platform that aims to improve the communication strategy of sports organizations by making the experience with their audience more personal. Some of their clients include Borussia Dortmund, the Portuguese football Federation and the Nashville Predators. It is an honor and a pleasure to host him in the Halftime Snacks. Ladies and gentlemen, Asaf Nevo.
0: Hi Ronan. Thanks for the welcome.
1: It's great to host you, Asaf. Thank you for taking my invitation to the show. I'm delighted to have you here and I want to start straight away by talking about you and your story, your background. I want to know, of course, how you first got involved in the sports business and what has been the process towards becoming a sports tech entrepreneur?
0: Uh, it's funny because I'm actually coming from a different entrepreneurship background. Uh, For many years before Pico, I used to own a bar here in Haifa, my, my hometown. The thing with sports, just you know, as, as sports fans and as people who like the entertainment industry, we just found like a big uh, market failure. And then we started to explore and to test and see until we found the right market fit of, you know, building what Pico is today. So I think that's where everything started as, as seeing some market failure that we can actually jump in and try to fix.
1: How come you decided to drop your full time job to devote your whole life to a startup, you know, given all the uncertainty and given all the unknown, what does it take?
0: Uh, it's a good question. To be honest, I'm not. I'm not coming. I didn't come from a full-time job. I used to own another business for many years. So I'm now 36, and ever since I was 23, I'm in the entrepreneurship space. So my first entrepreneurial experience was a bit different. Like I said, it was a nightlife business, a bar. Uh, but at some point, you know, uncertainty is is part of my life in the last 15 years. So that's not a, that's not a big issue for me. Uh, But we did decide at some point, me and one of the uh, one of others, uh, Pico's co-founders, Roy, to uh, sell our stocks and and leave the bar to invest all of our time in Pico. I think the decision came, I wouldn't say easily, but it wasn't a hard decision because we were at the bar for many years. You know, uh, it was working, it was driving and, and we came to a point when we wanted a bit more. We wanted a bigger challenge. We wanted to grow in other markets. So it was pretty natural, I have to say. Could say it was super easy, but it was, it was like something that came out naturally for us.
1: It sounds like you do have the spirit of the entrepreneur and you can detect opportunity where it lies. I wonder, how come, like, what did you realize with Pico that like, no one else was putting attention in and then you decided like that's a great opportunity?
0: You know, Pico evolved as, as what we started it a few years ago to what it is today. But I think that as part of this journey, we kind of like saw that what we had in mind in the first place changed a lot to find the right market fit. And until we found a problem that uh, has what it's called the blue ocean. So people, not many people are trying to solve and there's still a big, big enough market to actually come in and, uh, and play. I think it took us a lot of kind of like A-B testing. And, and until we find the right market fit to what we do. And today, while there are maybe some companies that, that does not maybe compete with us directly, but touch different touching points of what we know how to do, we have established ourselves as a, the only company that does the full process of creating the fan journey and understand who the fans are on the digital space, create a data-driven marketing strategy, and understanding how to touch point with every fan on every interaction they have with the sports organization. So there's other companies maybe doing some part of this, but we're the only one who does the full cycle. So getting sports teams to be more digital and more um, innovative is something that we're focused on in the last two and a half, three years.
1: That's great, Asaf. And I want to ask you a little bit about the the technology itself. Like how are you guys uh, or which type of technologies or how are you guys leveraging the latest technologies to create engagement between those fans and these brands to do it better than ever before?
0: Yeah, so so Pico is a, is what we call a channel agnostic tool, so we have our basic technology as a, kind of like a stack and then you can implement it on every digital channel you have when you're engaging with fans. So let's say, you know, the average team would have around 10 different channels that they're managing communication with teams with fans. Sorry. It could be Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, it could also be a website, an app, text messaging, email campaigns, TikTok, Weibo, if they are uh, working in China, Twitch, if they're doing eSports stuff. So there's tons of different channels and we've built this solution that could pretty much connect and being implemented in any channel they have. And the idea is that once we're in this channel, we are helping the teams to identify the fans that are in the channel, to helping them gather data about them continually. So it's not just, you know, your name, at the later stage we will learn who is your favorite player, and uh, what's your merchandise preferences, and what's your email address, or whatever type of data the team want to learn about you. And then we are taking this data to inject it into the team's infrastructure, you know, their CRM, their ERP systems, to make it accessible to everyone in the organization. So from a technology standpoint, we have a lot of machine learning and AI algorithms on the data gathering side, which help us label the interactions with fans to a way that we actually know to get insights about you. For example, uh, you know, if you are sending you, if we're showing you a call to actions for buying tickets and you're clicking it or maybe purchasing, we're automatically labeling you as someone who's interested in last-minute tickets and also probably not a seasonal ticket holder. So we, we do all these automatically. But also on the other side, after we have data about you, understanding what's the right um, campaign or what's the right marketing, whether it's marketing for offers like tickets and merchandise, but also marketing in terms of which type of content is going to work best for you we make these decisions based on, on technology. So the idea at the end is to really provide you as a fan the best experience we can with the team, with the offers, products, and content that you like the most.
1: That's fantastic Asaf. And I wonder with all this like data gathering and information that you know about the fans and about you know the followers of the teams and the sports organizations, I wonder if there's any specific lessons that you learned about humans and human behavior that, I mean, you were surprised by learning through those things that you guys do?
0: It's actually a funny question, because I think one of the things we've seen on the very basic level, there's a, because we're working globally, we have customers in, in Israel, uh, and we have customers in Europe, like you said, Borussia Dortmund and other big teams. We have customers in the US, which are NFL and NBA and NHL teams. Uh, we got our first traction from India, so we got uh, cricket teams working with us. Uh, And we have a South African rugby league who works with us. And we are now working on the first Brazilian teams. And what we have seen is that in every market, fans behave completely differently. There's always the basics of loving the game and want to buy tickets or seasonal ticket holders. The the basics are the same. But for example, if you as a fan in Israel or in Europe and the team has made uh, like a bad decision, let's say uh, the team fired a coach or the coach made a bad decision and they lost... You would see, in Europe, they will be really pissed. In Israel, they will actually send tons of curses. And everything you will try to do with fans during these times will be, you know, you will try to launch something fun. They will come in and say, oh, this is what you're spending your money on. This is stupid. You need to learn how to play. Like, they're going to be really emotional, really personal. While in the United States, for example, people are usually more polite. It's a very rare case in the States when we're actually seeing fans, like, cursing and really... They're always emotionally involved, but they're like personally emotionally involved, like cursing the coach or being super mad about something like that. So this is, this is funny because it shows you the sensitivity and how sensitive it is for fans, which also help us on the other side. We know which type of content and offers are going to be more relevant to fans who are more, like I said, emotionally involved or crazy emotionally involved, <laughs> if you may. So we know how to touch the triggers of these, of these fans.
1: Wow, that's amazing. You're actually preparing a strategy based on something that it may be rooted in a culture, but you can't really see it until you see it on the on the platform. That's amazing, uh, Asaf. I want to ask you more about organizational culture in Pico, like the values that you guys have. And of course, you as the CEO, how do you implement those values? How do you like keep reminding your, your people that that's like, the way you guys should work and how do you approach this process?
0: I have to say that personally, from from a personal aspect, the growing stage of a company, like after, you know, you, you came up with an idea and you tested it and, and it works and now you have a good product market fit and then you start to grow and suddenly you have 20 customers and then you have 40s and now you're getting to the 60s and they're all big teams, requires a lot of attention and lots of uh, nurturing and, you know, success management, account management. One of the things that I was surprised is how challenging is the growth stage itself. Like the fact that you're growing, that's, that's a challenge. But I never thought that this is gonna be challenging, but, but it is. From a cultural standpoint, what we are always trying to think of is to think on the eyes you know, of the customer. Like, like not only about what we wanna show them, it's more about helping them tell the story. So we're always focused on the stories. And because we were exposed to lots of very interesting data, uh, which just to say as a side note, It's all always owned by the team and it's never being used for, you know, uh, evil purposes. It's never being sold to only one. It's only being built in the purpose of providing a better experience for the fans. Uh, And we always try to help the teams and the people we work with personally to tell a a better story, whether it's a better story for the fans or a better story internally. Like if I'm working with someone who is, you know, VP uh, of growth, I will help him build a story of how he leveraged data to provide growth to the company. If I'm working with a digital marketer, we will help them build a story that is focused on how content is now provide performance and provide data and not only likes and comments and shares. So I think our culture is very customer centric in terms of understanding what we can actually do to make the customer's life easier, but also, to have a, like, like a new innovative, innovative story internally because we are educating the market and we're helping the market to grow and to understand that they can do better with the amazing engagement they're having out of the box. Um, and I think this also, um, you know, go down inside our organization to, to always think about how we can make their life easier as we're trying to make their fans' life easier.
1: I wanna double tap oh, a little bit on what you said about the power of good storytelling. Why would you say that a good story would impact fans and followers better than just providing like stats or facts or like plain like, I don't know, information that is not really like engaging? Why would you think that a, a good story would go way further than just like, like something raw?
0: I think it's kind of like the nature of... of- you know, the human being, I think that we, especially today, when there are so many channels and so many distractions and so many attractions and things that you want to be able to digest and read and, and videos you want to watch, it has to be interesting. I don't think stats and and raw information is irrelevant. I'm just not sure it's relevant for everybody. So unless you are a, a real fan, diehard fan, who's living the team on the day-to-day, I would say most of the stats are not that relevant for you. People like myself who follow teams around the globe, I'm not into the big details. But I am, you know, when you have someone like uh, uh, Erling Haaland, you know, in Dortmund, that is in his first game, provided three, uh, uh, three goals. It's a freaking sensation, and it's not about stats. It's about he's a legend, and and the amount of expectations and the and the amount of good noise that it brings to the team is amazing. So so I think telling a story, you know, you could tell this is Erling Haaland and this is uh, his, you know, his height and this is his weight and this is how good he is and this is how many goals he scored at the last team, et etc. Et nothing as this could be compared to the fact that when he got in, you know, he scored three. That, that's like, nothing could beat that. And I think most people with the level of attention that they're able to actually provide to the team. It's just easier for them to digest and get the highlights. But I think it's also speaking of organizations, it's also right internally. You have, we have as an organization, we have a lot of data, data that is something we're getting for our customers, but also internal data. deal flows, we have account management data, we have fundraising and all that. At the end, you always need to build a story. You, You always need to make sure the dots are connected because It's just too hard to connect all the dots on your own. So I think wrapping everything in a good storytelling helps everybody to stay connected and aligned with the main goal.
1: That's fascinating, Asaf. And now that you mentioned data and the way you guys use data and the amount of data that we have, I mean, now there's somewhere I read that the amount of data collected in like the last five years or in the next five years, something like that, it's going to be more than all the data accumulated in, in like history of humankind. This this discussion around data and around, you know, how machines are taking over humans in a way. I wonder what's your take? What's your opinion about the way data is going to take decisions for us in the future? Do you think that data and machines will replace the way not only sports organizations, but other companies and maybe like governments decide for the, for the country, or is there a point where data will be limited and, and the human psychology we're, will understand better and that's how they're going to make decisions or how is it going to look like in the future with all this like revolution of data?
0: I'm not a big, not a big fans of, you know, robots and machines replacing. I do think, that although all the data we have, still there's something, there's still a missing link that that has to be human. And that's the ability not to process the data as much as it did to serve the data. And I think one of the biggest problems in almost all markets is the ability to serve the data. I'll give you an example from my world. And I think that COVID also shows pretty much the same thing in the way governments manages this crisis. And sometimes, you know, the political debate is beating the data debate. And sometimes decisions are not made only based on data. At Pico, one of the things that we have seen that the sports teams, although they're not always able to use all the data, they do have a lot of data. But one thing that they're sometimes struggling with is connecting all the dots. So even if you're connecting all the dots for them, this is part of what we do. At the end of the day, there is someone sitting on the other end. And this person, his role is to decide what's going on and what's not in terms of what content is going to go out, which marketing campaign is going to go out. And what we are trying to do is to create a process in which everything is very, very easy for them to just say yes or no. So they don't need to look at the data as a raw thing. They don't need to make the decisions based on the data. They need to have the data digested and and decide yes or no, kind of like Tinder, you know, swipe right, swipe left. That's the idea. So I'll give you an example. Let's say if you are the Los Angeles Lakers, and we have data about your fans our goal is to be able to come in and say hey it's christmas time now in in two months from now and we're we we see that you have 30,000 fans in the database who like lebron and also express interest in a jersey that's a good time now to send them out a jersey christmas uh, uh, promotion yes or no this this ability to connect between between those dots and make b- business decisions based on the different labeling and, and properties you know about specific fan groups, that's what makes things uh, much more efficient. I think Facebook does it really well in the way they're marketing you know to users, uh, but I think other organizations that are not Facebook are struggling with building these data sets that will help them make decisions that way. So I think no matter how much data you have in the world, no matter how strong your machines are, at the end of the day, the accessibility to the data or the the way you're serving the data, that's that's what makes the real difference. Because not all companies are Facebook from from a technical standpoint, and not all companies are Google from a technical standpoint, or Amazon. Not every company could come in and and create this strategy that everything is automated by the machine. So that's not realistic to my understanding. But I think that every company could expect to have everything pre-digested in a way that they just need to decide whether and which part of the data they're actually gonna use.
1: Wow. That's, uh, that's actually fascinating Asaf. I think in the following years, I'd say my prediction is in the next five years, we're going to see a very significant boom in the digesting side that you mentioned. I'm sure like you are one of like the big players in the sports tech uh, industry, but I think it's going to go across like multiple sectors and industries around if they're not already there, you know, because, This is like the time that, you know, we're going to see it happen the most. It's going to become trending, I believe. And I think you guys are riding a a nice wave. And uh, of course, in a fantastic industry like this, like the sports industry, I'm sure it's going to be great for you guys in the next coming years, especially now with like uh, how engagement needs to be raised due to like lack of attendance in stadiums and how like people need to feel like they're in the game while they're at home. So I think like you guys are gonna have like a lot of things cooking up in the next coming months or, or years as well. To you know, uh, keep growing and keep doing great things. And you know, since we're running out of time, uh, I w wa- I can't leave this interview without asking you a more personal question, Asaf. And since you're like a great entrepreneur and your mindset is amazing and you radiate amazing entrepreneurship vibes, I want to ask you about one or one to three books that have greatly influenced your life. And why would you chose uh, those specific ones?
0: It's not, might not be the book you were <laughs> you were expecting to hear, but I read a, a book called The Challenger Sale. I started reading this on on the beginning uh, when we started to grow and we started to have lots of uh, parallel parallel deal cycles or sales cycles, and I, we try to like crack up how we can position ourselves in a way that it's going to be um, a must-have for for the teams. It was like two something years ago. And speaking of data, The Challenger Sale is a book about uh, how, how you're creating a high-performance salesperson. And, and it's a book that was written based on a study that made um, uh, made by two, pers- two um, individuals called Matthew Dixon and Brett Adamson. And they made a study across 300 different uh, SaaS platforms and the way they're selling, and they try to come up with the data and what they found out and this this is the highlight of the book and that's that's why the book made such a big hype in the in the sales industry that while we always think that customers are going to buy in because you are their best friends and because you're going to take them to dinners and everything they actually saw that customers will most uh, likely buy if you challenge them so if you are actually make them think and if you are asking them the tough questions and not if you are not necessarily if you are Um, you know, just the slicky salesperson that always says the right words. It's more about if you are a high-performance salesperson, you need to come into the room and you need to control the room and you need to ask the questions that are going to make them sometimes feel uncomfortable or challenged in in a positive way. And the fact uh, they showed that in high-performance salesperson almost none of them was the slicky type or the best friend type. They were all challengers, they all knew how to come in and, and spot on the problem and spot on the solution for the problem in a way that the customer was unable to say no. And I think, I wouldn't say life-changing, but, but I think it was super interesting for us also to see how we can adapt a lot of this, you know, in our organization, in our sales processes, how we can challenge our prospects in a way that will help us close more deals. And, and it worked. This is one of the latest books I remember reading, which I really enjoyed, which also, again, was, was based on data and not based on, you know, one or second uh, sales approach. It was based on real study. So it's super interesting and it's definitely my recommendation if you're dealing with sales or growing a business, go out and read it because it's going gonna, it's gonna to change the way you're thinking of things.
1: It's going to go straight up into my must read list right now. Sounds like a great book. Uh, and I think that's a great place to wrap today's conversation Asaf I want to thank you so much for your time for your insights and of course your kindness uh, you're a great guy a great entrepreneur I'm sure you're going to have lots of su- success all your life and I'm looking forward to it but for now you know thank you for coming and snacking with me Asaf
0: thanks a lot Juan and it's been a super pleasure and I really hope we can meet in person soon
1: Before you leave, I want to thank you for listening. To hear these or any other halftime snack, check out the full archive on my website, which you can find on the show notes. See you next week!